First Kings chapter 17, we begin in verse 16. And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruse of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah. And it came to pass after these things, that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick. And his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. And she said unto Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? And he said unto her, Give me thy son. And he took him out of her bosom and carried him up into a loft where he abode and laid him upon his own bed. And he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourn by slaying her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house and delivered him unto his mother. And Elijah said, See, thy son liveth. And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that thou art a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. Amen. We'll end our reading at the end of the chapter, and we know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. If I could call your attention in particular to the first verse of this section we read, we'll consider the entire section, but let's look again at the first verse where it says, And it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick, and his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. The author of Hebrews probably has this section of 1 Kings 17 in mind, when in that great faith chapter, the 11th chapter, he writes of those who quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of aliens, women received their dead raised to life again. This event in the home of the widow of Zarephath marks the first time in the Bible that we read of a resurrection miracle in which a dead child is brought back to life. You could say that a seed is planted in the mind of the reader of the Bible, a seed that would grow and flourish and lead us to the greatest miracle of all time, the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. Paul would say to King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? And indeed, the greatest apologetic 
that you need for proof of the resurrection of the dead is the character of God. Why indeed should it be thought a thing incredible? After all, God is the creator of the universe. He's the one that breathed into man and caused him to become a living soul. We're actually given something of a fuller account in our text as to how God performs such a miracle of resurrection. You'll notice a very specific petition on the part of Elijah in verse 21, where he prays, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. And in the next verse, we see that God answers Elijah's prayer very specifically. And so we read, And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. I've been teaching a course over the past few weeks to students in our seminary uh, on anthropology. And this text certainly strikes a chord uh, to those studying anthropology because it does reveal to us the makeup of man in body and soul. And we know that the soul can have an existence of its own apart from the body, but we also know that in resurrection, the soul is reunited with the body, as is the case here. We can hardly imagine the wonder and awe that would have filled the mind and heart of the son's mother, as well as Elijah himself, when the soul of this child returned to its body and the young man revived. But I've jumped ahead in the narrative to the climax of the story, and we need to pay attention to the things that led to this climax. In analyzing the story, you could say that we first meet with an awful tragedy when the son of the widow dies. There follows an accusation leveled against the prophet. It's as if she's saying to him, it's your fault that he died. The widow thinks, in fact, that it's Elijah's fault that her son has passed away. This is followed by the prophet's request for the dead child, and there follows very fervent and even strange intercession for the child, which in turn is followed by the resurrection of the child, and then you find a presentation of the child back to its mother, and the narrative concludes with a confession from the mother about the character of Elijah. Truly you are a man of God, and truly God's word is truth. She has led to that conclusion. I'm interested this morning in what could rightly be called the fiery trial that the widow of Zarephath went through. Peter tells us in his first epistle that we're not to count such trials to be strange. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. That's 1 Peter 4 and verse 12. This widow had no such word at the time. There's certainly no indication that Elijah warned her of an impending tragedy. 
Keep in mind that the whole household was being provided for supernaturally with the steady supply of meal and oil while the land suffered from drought and famine. And then it seems that out of the blue, so to speak, the widow's son is struck with a sickness that evidently became so bad that the child then passed away. And the widow's response to this harsh providence wasn't something that we as Christians would want to imitate. And yet the temptation can be very strong to respond the same way that she did to this harsh providence. So let's look at the narrative this morning and focus on the widow's fiery trial. And in the process, we'll be able to draw lessons on how we should respond to the fiery trials that come our way, as most certainly they will. Right responses to fiery trials, then, is my theme. Call it my title, if you will. What does this story teach us about right responses to fiery trials? Well, consider with me, first of all, that in this story, we find an expectation to prepare us for those trials. An expectation to prepare us. Again, the words of our text, verse 17, And it came to pass after these things, that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick, and his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. It's important to note the setting And remember the context of this trauma. Notice that it says it came to pass after these things. I mentioned a moment ago that this trauma or tragedy took place at a time when Elijah and the widow and her son were knowing on a regular basis the grace of God in his provision for their physical needs. Notice the words of verses 15 and 16. In 1 Kings 17, And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah, and she and he and her house did eat many days, and the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruse of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah. We're not told exactly how long this supernatural provision took place. But it's fair to say that it wasn't a brief period. Many days, the text says, and that could indicate, I suppose, weeks or even months in which they're knowing this supernatural provision from the Lord. And in the broader context, we know that this provision took place during a time of drought and famine. It's obvious, therefore, that this widow and her household were the recipients of great favor from God. She was a chosen widow, you could say. Christ himself makes that point in Luke chapter 4 and verse 25, where we read, But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. 
This wasn't happening to everyone. Indeed, this miraculous provision wasn't happening to anyone. Short of this one instance of the widow of Zarephath. You see what I mean when I say she was a chosen widow. She was chosen to be the recipient of God's special favor and provision. You and I share something in common with the widow of Zarephath in this respect. We too have been chosen recipients of God's grace and God's favor. We're looking at that a little bit in Sunday school this morning, considering how faith and repentance, repentance especially was our focus, that it comes as a gift from God to those that are chosen. We have been visited with salvation. We have, for the most part, I hope this is true of you, may not be true of everyone, but for the most part, I would say we have gained a saving interest in Jesus Christ, which means then that we are the recipients of special favor and grace to an incredible degree. Paul expresses this salvation from a heavenly perspective when he writes in Ephesians 1 and verse 4, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Think about that for a moment. How is it that in a day like ours, a day of great wickedness and moral perversity and rebellion against God, when the whole world seems to be on the broad road leading to destruction, how is it that in such a time as this, you're not a part of the many that are on that broad road leading to destruction? The answer can't be found by anything in you. For we all fall under the classification that Paul elaborates in Romans 3 and verse 10, as it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. And that includes you and it includes me. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. No, brothers and sisters in Christ, our salvation has to be attributed wholly to the sovereign pleasure and grace of God. So like this widow in Zarephath, you have been highly favored. The point I'm aiming for, however, is that even though this widow was highly favored during a time of drought and famine, she was not, because of that, exempted from fiery trials. As the narrative makes pretty plain. And so our text tells us, and it came to pass after these things, after what things? After this supernatural, gracious provision that met her physical needs, that kept her and her son and Elijah alive. After these things, 
that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick, and his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. I think the picture presented in this verse is one of a bad situation that goes from bad to worse. Listen to the way a paraphrased version of the Old Testament puts it. Later on, the woman's son became sick. The sickness took a turn for the worse, and then he stopped breathing. Do you see how in the space of a short verse, the picture is presented to us, not of a sudden death in the widow's house, not of the young man being suddenly stricken and then dying, but I think the way the verse is expressed here makes it pretty plain that this was uh, probably a rapid and yet a gradual death. It may very well be that initially when the woman's son became sick, she might not have thought that much about it. After all, everyone gets sick. Nothing out of the ordinary in that. But in this instance, there was no recovery, but instead a situation that goes from bad to worse. The sickness became sore, our authorized version reads, and the word means literally severe, sharp, or hot. Not hard to envision then a rising temperature and a sick young man perspiring profusely, on the bed with loss of appetite and symptoms that grow worse until at last he stops breathing. And as the child, perhaps rapidly but gradually enough, so that it wasn't instantaneous, became worse, so would you have the emotions of a distraught mother becoming more anxious. So just as her son's fever would have become hotter, so would the widow's fiery trial have become hotter. And the point I'm wanting to make just now is this, even the recipients of God's special favor are subjected to fiery trials. I don't know of a clearer example than this to demonstrate that. Recipients of God's Blessings, God's grace, are subjected to fiery trials. This is why Peter writes in his first epistle, chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. And earlier in his first epistle, in chapter 1, in verse 3, he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice, and then note this part we've arrived at, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Though now for a season, if need be. Question, who decides when the need be 
applies. Well, if it were you and it was me, we would say, no, that, uh, that never need apply to me. I, I'm never ready. I don't think it's ever necessary uh, for trials to come my way. But if God be the judge, which of course he is, then manifold trials will come our way. James addresses this subject as well in his epistle, where he writes that we're not only to not count it strange, but we're actually supposed to rejoice. My brethren, he writes, chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. I'll come back a little later to this notion of counting it all joy. All I'm endeavoring to do now is to make the point that we're taught to expect fiery trials. Christ himself promised them, in the world ye shall have tribulations. He says in John 16 and verse 33. So be prepared for fiery trials and tribulations. Don't be surprised by them. I think we could say that the widow of Zarephath was not prepared, nor did she expect such a fiery trial. She had, after all, been the recipient of God's favor. Don't make the mistake of thinking that your status as a recipient of God's grace exempts you from trials. Christ has a purpose of grace in your trials. Christ is glorified in your trials. So the first step, so to speak, in responding rightly to fiery trials is not to be surprised by them. But let's note next from our text that we're shown a temptation that must be overcome. We're given a lesson of expectation based on the example of the widow of Zarephath. We see next, secondly, a temptation that must be overcome. Notice the widow's harsh response to her fiery trial by what she says to Elijah in verse 18. And she said unto Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? The harshness of her words to Elijah come out even more vividly in another translation of the words. This is the ESV. It reads, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. Listen to the way my favorite paraphrase puts it. This is the message uh, paraphrase. Okay? Um, a word about the message. Keep in mind it is a paraphrase, but what an effective commentary you can find in a paraphrase at times. Listen to the way it puts it. The woman said to Elijah, Why did you ever show up here in the first place? A holy man barging in, exposing my sins, and killing my son? Hmm. Rather amazing to note, isn't it, just what this widow seems to have forgotten when she utters these words. 
She's forgotten that when Elijah first showed up at the gate of the city, she was in the process of preparing her last meal for herself and her son. They were both on the brink of death. She was on the brink of starvation. It seems that our trials tend to make us so often forget our blessings. And that's a temptation that needs to be overcome. It's a common phenomenon in Scripture. I marvel at what the entire Israelite nation forgot when they wandered in the wilderness and they grumbled and complained and they accused Moses of leading them into the desert to slay them. They forgot that they were slaves in Egypt. They forgot that their children were targeted to be slain had they remained in Egypt. They forgot that God had delivered them with a mighty hand and a stretched out arm. They forgot that they had heard the voice of God at Mount Sinai. They forgot their daily provisions of manna. Oh, I'm afraid it can't be denied that fiery trials have a tendency to bring out the worst in us. That was certainly the case with Job, wasn't it? He started out well when he said at the end of chapter 1, and this this follows uh, the loss of everything, his possessions, his crops, his animals, his children. And at the end of chapter 1, we find him in response saying, The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Keep in mind that those words were spoken by Job after he lost his children to to a tragic death. And as I said, he started out well, but before his trial was over, he would be justifying himself rather than God, which just is another way of saying that he would be accusing or condemning God, just as the widow of Zarephath was doing by accusing Elijah of slaying her son. She was ultimately accusing God himself. It's worth noting also that fiery trials bring our sins to our own remembrance. What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? Rather interesting to note here, isn't it, that sin can lie latent in our hearts for long periods of time. I'm reminded of Joseph's brothers in the book of Genesis when they first appeared before Joseph and he initially dealt harshly with them. We read in Genesis 42 and verse 21, and they, that is Joseph's brothers, said one to another, we are verily guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us and we would not hear, therefore is this distress come upon us. Now keep in mind, that was like decades after they had sinned against Joseph. Joseph was some 17 years old when they sold him to be a slave. And I forget the exact age it's given to us in Scripture, and I think it was some 20 years later when he appeared before Pharaoh. So you have a couple of decades now, and here the the sin committed against their brother 
is brought to their remembrance because of this fiery trial that Joseph saw fit to bring their way. Who knows what sins would have come to the surface of this widow's mind when her son died? She reveals to us a common tendency that when fiery trials come, we tend to think the opposite of what God's Word tells us. God tells us through Paul in Romans 5 and verse 20 that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. The widow's testimony would be that where grace abounded, sin did much more abound. She's kind of inverted that, hasn't she? She's been the recipient of grace for numerous days, and now her son is struck And she thinks it's on account of her sin. Now, it can't be denied that there is a sense in which her reasoning would be correct. We live in a day of grace. God's common grace is upon this world. And it's upon believer and unbeliever alike. He causes the the, the sun to shine and the rain to fall upon the whole world. So God is gracious. And yet sin must and will be called into account. The temptation we as Christians have to overcome, however, is the temptation of thinking that God deals with us in harsh providences as a matter of judgment. That he's judging us. That kind of thinking denies the gospel and it denies the work of Christ on Calvary's cross. Now it is true what the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 12 and verse 11. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. So there's no denying that fiery trials are painful. How could this widow be anything but pained by the loss of her son? But as painful as our trials can be, We do err if we accuse God the way this widow accused God of judging her for her sins. In that same chapter of Hebrews, chapter 12, we're told of a very serious condition that must be avoided, especially during our trials. It's the condition of bitterness. Listen to these words from Hebrews 12, verse 14. Follow peace with all men and holiness, the author writes, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. When a soul is gripped by bitterness, it's as if that root strangles even the grace of God. Such a soul becomes angry about everything and becomes angry at everyone. The words of the widow of Zarephath to Elijah certainly indicate that a root of bitterness was strangling her soul. Better by far to heed the exhortation of Hebrews 12 and verse 5, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. 
Okay? Don't faint. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. You hear what the author of Hebrews is saying in those words? Oh, that such words would find sound lodging in our hearts, especially when we find ourselves in the midst of fiery trials, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, the author of Hebrews says. And he makes the point that there are no exceptions to the rule. He scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Do you know what that means then? And this kind of ties back into what I referenced earlier in the message about being able to rejoice in our trials, rejoice in our fiery trials. How is that even possible? Do we come unfeeling blocks of wood so that we don't feel the sting of harsh providences? Well, no, not at all. But what those providences can reveal to us, the message that they convey to us is, you are a child of Christ. And that's why this fiery trial is upon you. Your fiery trial can actually become a source of assurance to you that you are a child of God. You would have cause to be concerned uh, if you never underwent the scourgings that come from a loving Heavenly Father. So it is actually possible to rejoice in the midst of trials because of the message that they convey to us. I know I pointed this out in the past, that when you get onto the topic in many Christian circles about Christian liberty, usually the argument is about what you can and can't do. Do I have liberty for this? Can I do this, that, or the other thing? What's wrong with this? What's wrong with that? So on and so forth. Here's an aspect of Christian liberty that I love. We have the liberty of interpreting every circumstance of life as being ministered to us from a loving Heavenly Father and not from a judge who condemns us. Pretty big difference. So we're taught to not count our trials to be strange. On the contrary, we're taught to expect them. We're also taught not to follow the example of the widow of Zarephath who became angry at God and at God's servant when her trial came. Let's consider finally that our text presents to us a manifestation of hope to encourage us in our trials. A manifestation of hope to encourage us. It's encouraging to see the response of Elijah to the widow's harsh accusation. He doesn't respond in kind, does he? He doesn't rebuke her for her failure to remember her blessings and the fact that she and her son were at the brink of death before Elijah arrived. He doesn't announce judgment toward her the way he did before King Ahab at the beginning of the chapter. 
Instead, he says in verse 19, and this is probably worth a sermon all its own, maybe I'll come back to it. Verse 19, he says, Give me thy son. Give me thy son. And I find it interesting to note a detail in the narrative that demonstrates the grace of God from start to finish. You'll notice that verse 19 does not say that she then gave Elijah her son. No, rather, it goes on to say, and he took him out of her bosom. Now, we don't get the impression that there was any resistance on her part when Elijah took her son out of her bosom, but we're not given the picture either of her holding out her son and saying, yes, here, take him. What an illustration of God's grace, effectual grace, that works in souls in this gospel age. Elijah took him out of her bosom, and then he carried him up into a loft where he abode, and he laid him upon his own bed. And then there follows something that seems very strange. Elijah intercedes for the widow's son, and he intercedes fervently. That's not particularly strange for the prophet. But what becomes strange is that he stretched himself upon the child three times while he cried to the Lord for the child. And though this action may seem strange and perhaps even a little grotesque, it shows us a certain identification with Elijah, with the child. More importantly, it reminds us of an even greater act of condescension on the part of Jesus Christ. You think it's gross for a prophet to stretch himself on uh, the corpse of a child? Well, how about Jesus Christ identifying with us by taking his abode in the womb of the Virgin Mary? My, from a perspective of holiness, that is even more incredible. And in Christ's identification with us, he could intercede for us in a way that would prevail with God. And so we go on to read in verse 22, And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. Oh, what power and what grace. And I can't help but think that when Elijah presented the child back to its mother, her heart was filled not only with joy and thanksgiving, but also with humble praise and thanksgiving. Her accusations, you see, were not held against her, but instead God's grace proved to be even greater. Now we do well to ask ourselves, what does such a narrative teach us then? Does it teach us to expect miracles when our loved ones fall sick with such a sickness that leads to death? Oh, if that was the case, Brenda Richter would still be with us, wouldn't she? Not just with us, but healed of the disease that took her life recently. We'd be very disappointed to try to take such a lesson out of this narrative, for the fact of the matter is that miracles do not generally occur like this. They may on very rare occasions take place, but certainly not as a general rule. 
But here is what we can take from the, the narrative, that in the midst of such trials, God will not cease to be gracious. And there will come a time when the miracle of the resurrection of the widow's son will take place in the lives of us all and in the lives of loved ones that have gone before us. So Christ says in John 5, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. And I would suggest to you that those that have done good have performed the good work of believing in Jesus Christ. The Jews asked Christ in John's Gospel, what work can we do to work the works of God? You remember his answer? This is the work of God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will know the resurrection of life. Apart from that, you will know resurrection. But, and these are Christ's words, not mine, the resurrection of damnation. The resurrection of damnation. It is true. It is real. So in the midst of our trials, we are taught that we are never without hope. That was the lesson that I took away from Sunday school this morning. We studied the man in the iron cage from Pilgrim's Progress. And there was a man without hope. He had given up on the gospel. And when you've given up on the gospel, you are beyond all doubt without hope. Our hope is grounded in Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us, that ultimately we will never die because we have passed from death unto life. What then should be the believer's response to fiery trials? Well, certainly he should not be surprised by them. He should be taught rather to expect them Count it not to be strange. Don't think this is something unusual. And he should make sure that he's so, so well fortified in his knowledge of the gospel of Christ that he's able to overcome the temptation to become angry and to accuse God. And he should learn also to always have hope even in the midst of his trials. I've said it on occasions before. There is such a thing as a disheartened Christian. You can find discouraged Christians. That is a true and real phenomenon. What you should never see or find is a hopeless Christian. That's the man in the iron cage. No such thing as a hopeless Christian. We have the sure hope that God is with us, that God is for us, and that nothing can ever separate us from his love. So may God help us to take these lessons to heart and to know how to respond in the midst of our own fiery trials.
Let's close then in prayer. Let's all pray. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now, we thank thee for the lessons of thy word. We thank thee for the truth of Christ's love. We thank thee that when we look away to Calvary's cross, we find a demonstration of love that, that could not be greater. O Lord, we see one dying in our place. We see one bearing shame and scoffing rude. In our place condemned he stood, sealed our pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. We pray, dear Lord, that we won't count it strange when you subject us to trials. We know that Christ himself was subjected to trials and we're being conformed to his image. So why would we count it strange? We pray instead that we may be more than conquerors through him that loved us. May we never lose sight of his love, O Lord, no matter what the circumstances of life bring our way under thy hand. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.